Good morning, everyone. Kids, you're dismissed. Hope you have a great time in Gospel Project today. Thank you for those of you who are heading out to help lead them. Um, Everybody else, if you could turn with me to Psalm 16, please. We'll be in Psalm 16. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one in the chair, underneath the chair in front of you. Feel free to take that if you don't own a Bible for yourself. Last week, uh, Dr. Haney started us off in our new series called Songs of Jesus. We're taking the month of December to look at some of the stories from the Psalms that tell us about who Jesus is and what he came to do. Thank you, Dr. Haney, for that last week. Psalm 16 is where we are today. One of the best things about living in Arizona is the summer, right? (laughs) No. One of the best things about living in Arizona is the sunrise. Sunrises are incredible here, aren't they? The three of us that are awake early enough to see them, they are incredible. Uh, A sunrise in Arizona has a whole array of beautiful colors. Red to pink to dark blue to light blue light up the sky as the sun comes up. It's incredible. The horizons are stunning. Today, we're going to look at a psalm that has equally stunning horizons. And we'll consider them in a chronological fashion, if you will. Looking at different parts of the sky yield a different color. And this psalm does the same thing. It reveals the multifacetedness of God's work. Today we'll look at three horizons in Psalm 16. First, we'll look at David's deliverance, which is originally how the psalm was used. Second, we'll look at Jesus' resurrection. And finally, we'll talk about our ultimate joy. So as we briefly walk through this powerful psalm this morning, we'll see, again, chronologically, how first the psalm teaches us about how God delivered David from a time of difficulty. Second, we'll look and see how it pointed forward to Jesus' resurrection. And then last, today, we'll look back on this psalm and see how it's at work in our lives today. That makes sense? All right, so as we do that, I want to ask you if you'd consider a question with me this morning. So in, as we consider each of those horizons, perhaps you could be thinking about this simple question. Is putting your confidence in God the right place to put it? We all put confidence in something. We have someone or something we're looking to as the object of our trust, as the place in which our promises will come true. And as we consider David, Jesus, and ultimately us, I hope you'll think about, is my confidence put in the right place? Is Jesus a good place to put my confidence. So Psalm 16, let's just look at the whole thing together. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply Their drink offerings of blood I will pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. 
The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I will bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there's fullness of joy. At your right hand, there are pleasures evermore. So first of all, David's deliverance. Maybe you're here today and you're not familiar with the Bible. Of course, the very natural first question to ask is, who in the world is David? In the first book in the Bible, Genesis, God promised a guy named Abram that from his descendants would come a whole new people group. And historically, we now know, of course, that those are the the Israelites. So God took one man and one woman, and from them, over centuries, formed the nation of Israel. Abram had kids who had kids who had kids, and they ended up being a whole new ethnic group. Roughly around the year 1000 BC, a guy named David became the king of Israel. And that's who wrote this psalm. In its very original usage, this psalm is about David reflecting, praying, singing to God, remembering who God is and what he's done. Now, by the way, this is around the same time the Mayan dynasty was founded in Central America. So, If you believe the Mayans existed and what you read about them in your textbooks is truthful, then there's absolutely no reason to think that anything different would be the case with David. Same time frame, same historical record. The Christian faith is a historic faith. It's not the stuff of mere tradition. It's rooted in actual people who did real things in real history, just like we'd study anywhere else. The only reason to not believe that is if you have a a preconceived bias against the supernatural. David is is a historical person who was the king of Israel. The events in the Bible are trustworthy and we can count on them. So David, we know, was a poor kid who became the most important king Israel ever had. He went from shepherd to warrior to artist to king. And you've probably heard of the city of Jerusalem, right? You didn't know you were going to get a school lesson today, did you? What we want to do in this series is try to show the the historical nature of what has happened because it can really cause the Bible to come to life. David captured the city of Jerusalem, the same city that's there today, and made it the capital of Israel. God used him to build a strong nation. He was a remarkable man. So Psalm 16 is, first of all, David's declaration that his confidence was in God and that experientially he had learned that that's the right place to put confidence, that confidence in God is confidence rightly placed. Now for him, that was a big thing to say. This was one of the most powerful men alive in his day. David is saying, my confidence is not in how much money I had. It's not in my throne. It's not in my wives, and he had a bunch of them. 
It's not in my kids. He had at least 19 boys. That's a lot of guys, isn't it? Can you imagine raising 19 boys? Oh my gosh. He's saying, my confidence was not in my military power and my artistic abilities, not in my strategies that had led me to conquer Jerusalem. My confidence is in God. David's trust was not in himself or his resources, but in his Lord. Psalm 16 is a declaration of confidence in God. I want to be like that when I grow up. Somebody who says, Regardless of the natural abilities or resources God has chosen to give me, I don't look to them for my trust. They will fail me. I look to God. Now, what does David request in this psalm? Well, look at the very first verse, the very first couple of words. Simply say, preserve me, O God. That's his request. Preserve me, O God. Have you ever felt compelled to pray a prayer like that? Simple, not a lot of words, not a lot of spiritual language, just a request. God, preserve me. Students, maybe it was right before that big final you took last week. Senior adults, maybe it's simply to have the strength to get out of bed another day. Single moms, Maybe it's when the weight of work and house and decisions with kids and money all come crashing down on you and you feel like you have no one else to turn to. Kids, maybe it's when your best friend said she never wants to talk to you again. Preserve me, oh God. Nobody knows the exact circumstances that led David to pray that. It doesn't really matter because you and I face Circumstances in which we need God to preserve us. In fact, every moment of every day, we're in a position of need. God is the creator and we are the created. He's the king and we're citizens. He's father and we're sons and daughters. And our ever-present need is for God to preserve us. It's a request simply, God, guard me, protect me, sustain me, keep me. Because if you don't, I can't make it. Those moments are not the moments we look back on with warm fuzzies, but they're the best moments in life because it's in those moments when we find the delight that's present when we know we need God and see how faithful he is. When did David write this? Well, there was lots of opportunities for him to ask. As the youngest child of many brothers, he grew up being picked on. Those of you who are the youngest in the room can identify with that. As a shepherd, he had a dangerous, lonely job. His mentor, King Saul, tried to kill him, so he had to flee and hide in caves. As a warrior, he fought many battles, wondering, am I going to survive this one? As a king, he got an affair and ended up having the husband of the woman killed. And then for some lengthy period of time, he hid it. You know what it's like to be hiding in guilt, wondering, is today the day I'm going to be found out? In old age, he had a terrible conflict with his sons over who would take his throne. 
He had many, many opportunities to say, God, preserve me. Brothers and sisters, the list of things you've faced or maybe are facing today is different. But that doesn't make your cry for God to preserve you any less important. Preserve me, O God, as I go home for Christmas. Preserve me, O God, as I sleep next to a spouse who doesn't love me anymore. Preserve me, O God, as I've heard those dreaded words. It's cancer. Preserve me, O God, I'm really exhausted and overwhelmed today. Preserve me, O God, I'm not sure I believe your word anymore. After David wrote this psalm, so Psalm 16, for generations after him, the Israelites would have prayed it, sung it, memorized it, and repeated it to each other. David's prayer for deliverance became Israel's prayer for deliverance. So if we go back to our question, is putting your confidence in God the right place to put it? David's answer to that would be what? Yes, absolutely. There is no better place to put your confidence. David faced circumstances in which he found, without a doubt, that confidence in God is confidence rightly placed. Why? Well, the rest of the psalm tells us. If you simply track through it, with that question in your mind, what you see is David saying, God is good. God's people are a source of love and joy. God is faithful to provide. God gives me counsel. God is my help. God has preserved me. That's why his confidence was rightly placed in God. But his claim seems to go even further than that. Look at verse 11. He says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there's fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures evermore. Do you hear what he's claiming? Now, for those of you in the room who have been in church or read your Bible many times, those are not new words to you. There's a very famous verse. But stop for a moment and listen to what he's actually saying. These are not just mere words on a page. These are the the triumphant cry of someone who faced hardship and came out on the other side saying, I still believe in God. I still trust God. David is claiming that complete, fully satisfying, unending joy and pleasure are found in God. That's an audacious thing to say. Complete, fully satisfying, unending joy and pleasure are found in God. David's saying that's true today, tomorrow, and forever, even past death. Verse 9, therefore my heart is glad, my whole being rejoices, my flesh also dwells secure. Now verse 10 is where it gets weird. For you, meaning God, will not abandon my soul to Sheol. I'm sure over coffee this morning you've already used that word. (laughs) Sheol means the place of the dead. It was the Old Testament way of talking about the place where people go when they die. So he's saying, 
My whole being rejoices. My flesh dwells secure. You won't abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Now, what in the world is going on there? Well, when David referenced himself, that doesn't make a lot of sense. He could have meant, originally, I'm not going to die. God won't let me in this circumstance pass away. But there's got to be something more going on for that to really click. So to get our answer, we've got to turn into the New Testament. So if you would, jump all the way to Acts chapter 2. I'm sure you've been wondering, I thought this series was about Jesus. So let's see Acts chapter 2. Turn over there if you would, because this is mind-busting. Like if you don't have some brain oozing out your ear after this, something's wrong. Acts 2. Now, from, from jumping from Psalm 16 to Acts 2, all right, that many pages, we're turning over a thousand years of history. Acts comes roughly a thousand years after David wrote Psalm 16. God promised Israel a king. That king was first Saul. A king was next David. King after him was Solomon. And we could go on down the list. Many, 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 many kings. God promised that he would send a king that would bring God's people into a time of unending, tremendous joy. And so every time a king came to the throne, what the people thought, is this going to be the one? So somebody would come to his throne, he would rule, and to some degree or another, things would go bad. Not once, not twice, but dozens of times. And yet the people's hope rested in God because God promised God's going to send a king and God always keeps his word. And what Acts 2 is going to tell us is eventually that king came and that king's name was Jesus. The king of the cosmos put on a diaper. He lived a perfect life, claimed to be the king of Israel, died, and so the good life promised under that king seemed to go away completely. But perhaps you've heard, three days later, he rose again. No one expected that. It was complete shock. And so for roughly 40 days, Jesus traveled around. He spoke to people, met hundreds of people, showed himself. Again, this is history. It's not did it happen, but what does it mean that you've got to grapple with? It's the stuff of history. So Acts 2 tells us. Jesus has left earth, gone back to heaven. Harry talked about that last week, the ascension. Went back to his father. And the people are left asking, what in the world does this mean? They started reading their Old Testament in the correct way, in the way that it all pointed forward to Jesus. Now we're going to jump down in the middle of the sermon to make it shorter. That's what you always want in sermons, right? So verse 23. Here's what Peter says about 
Jesus. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Peter's claim, so this is a guy that after Jesus' death fell apart completely, absolutely fell apart. All of his trust and confidence in God was gone, totally, utterly gone. Have you been there? God, every promise I thought you made seems that it's not true anymore. I can't count on you. All of my confidence in you is gone. Trusting you, God, is worthless. I have wasted my life on a God who's not real. That was Peter. But now, Peter says, death couldn't hold Jesus. Not even death wins. Why? Here comes the brain part. You ready? Verse 25. For David says concerning him. Who's the him? Jesus. So David said about Jesus. Now this should sound familiar. I saw the Lord always before me. For he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, my tongue rejoiced, my flesh also will dwell in hope. You will not abandon my soul to Hades. Hades is the equivalent word at this time of Sheol. Or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. So what did David do? He said that the first horizon of Psalm 16 was David's deliverance, but there's more color in the sky. It pointed forward, ultimately, to Jesus Christ. So David, writing scripture, foretold what would happen to Jesus. A thousand years. Okay. No one, not even extremely liberal, anti-Christian scholars, would say Psalm 16 was written after Acts 2. No one says that. What do you do with that? Verse 29, brothers, now he's talking to the crowd. Brothers, I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. In other words, you can't read Psalm 16 and say David was just talking about himself because David said in Psalm 16 that whoever this person is he's talking about isn't going to rot in the grave. And David has rotted in the grave. So it can't be about David. There must be something more going on here. That's what Peter said. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Wow! If you're here today and you're not um, a Christian, and you have skepticism about the Bible, I would say to you, 
I understand. Uh, I was raised in a home with a pastor, and I was extremely skeptical, and I didn't care for either one of my parents for a long stretch of time. And my thought, getting drugged to church week after week after week, is my dad is saying that because he's paid to. I don't believe him. Why should I? I don't see God, and life is a mess. So if you're skeptical about the stories, I understand. I've walked in your shoes. And what I would ask you today is, if this is the stuff of history, if, if there was a guy named David and he wrote that, if there was a guy named Jesus and this happened to him, if there was a guy named Peter who said this, what is the most logical, explainable explanation for why the church exists today? None of us come to spiritual things with a, a clean, blank, empty slate. Nobody, that's impossible. If anybody tells you they do, stick your fingers in your ear and run the other direction. We all have preconceived notions of how the world works. All of us, everybody. But what's the most logical explanation? I would submit to you that I think it's that this must have actually happened. That David somehow must have actually been talking about Jesus, and that Jesus must have somehow not rotted in the grave, and that Peter, this man who denied Christ roughly 43, 44 days later, stands in front of a big crowd of his own people, points the finger at him and says, you killed him, but you couldn't win, not even death. So there's all sorts of implications of that for you to chew on. How else do we explain it? it? It's much less likely that this is some masterful conspiracy theory or that these are simply stupid backwoods people. It's a lot easier to believe it's true than to disbelieve it. Now, the implications of it, that's a whole other thing to think about. Peter here and Paul, if you read on later through Acts, both claim that Psalm 16 was never just about David's deliverance, but it was ultimately about the resurrection of Jesus. David's words transcended his own experience and pointed forward to what a thousand years later would come true in Christ. David looked forward to Jesus, and we look back at Jesus. Jesus died, but he didn't stay dead. Why? Because God the Father wouldn't let him. God raised him in victory, proving that everything Jesus said and did is true. That's why the resurrection is such a big deal. If the resurrection didn't happen, you guys should have slept in today. If the resurrection didn't happen, faith is just empty foolishness. The resurrection proves that everything Jesus claimed is actually true. So if you're looking for somebody to put your trust in for all of your life, I'd suggest you go with the guy who has resurrection power because that's better than any power you have. 
Why does Christmas matter? What's the big deal about a baby? Well, friends, it's that Jesus lived in our place. He died in our place. He rose in victory in our place. Life is found in him. He did everything we were supposed to do so that we can have everything we don't deserve to have. That's why Christmas matters. That's why it's such a big deal. Confidence in God is a good idea because our worst enemy, death, the one that none of us will beat, doesn't win. God wins. When sin entered the world, it caused a decreation of sorts. There was no death, there was no decay, there was no hardship, there was no crisis. Everything was good. But when sin entered, decreation began. Things began to fall apart. But Jesus came to usher in a new creation. You see, he wasn't simply resuscitated. He he didn't just get life breathed back into him. He rose again to a different order with a body that would never die again. You know the story of Lazarus? How'd you like to have been that guy, right? You die, you're with God, and then all of a sudden you come back. But guess what? Lazarus died again. Jesus didn't. Why? Because he was resurrected. He was given a restored, renewed, new creation body, never to die again, ever. That's going to be great. And he rose as what Scripture calls the first fruits, the the crop, the first crop from the harvest that demonstrates what all the rest of the crop coming after it would be. In other words, if you trust Christ, you're going to get one too, a new body, a new creation body, a body where nothing hurts, everything works, and more importantly, You never do anything that separates you and grieves God. Nothing. That's why Christmas matters. David found confidence in God to be entirely appropriate. Jesus says Psalms told him dying and rising again, which brings us to our last point, our ultimate joy. According to this Psalm, what is our ultimate joy? God. Another way to say that. What's the outcome of trusting and treasuring God above everything? What results in confidence in God who preserved David and persevered through him and foretold by this prophecy a thousand years before it happened, what would happen? God. And God brings ultimate joy. I said this earlier. It's worth repeating. Complete Fully satisfying, unending joy and pleasure are found in God. The miracle of Jesus being resurrected from the grave, prove it. Verse 11, you have made known to me the path of joy, path of life. In your presence, there's fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures evermore. Any lefties here today? Wow, are you joking? 
That's a lot of lefties. All right, what's up with God in the right hand stuff? Is God the ultimate anti-lefty? No. The image of the right hand is full of symbolism. God doesn't have a body. So if he describes himself as having body parts, he's telling us something. In just the Psalms alone, here are the things that we are told the right hand is about. There's a bunch of them. You ready? Here's what the right hand means. To be at the right hand is to be at a place of power, safety, honor, pleasure, favor, support, security, substance, victory, strength. That's the right hand. The right hand is the place of blessing. David's saying, God is all of that for him. Now, that doesn't mean his life was easy. His life ended with his kids fighting for his throne. That's awful. The right hand was the place of blessing. And the New Testament tells us that all of those right-handed blessings belong to Jesus. Because, as Dr. Haney talked about last week, after the resurrection and the ascension, where did Jesus go? He's sitting where? At the right hand. Again, all the connections in your Bible are incredible. There is no way we could ever exhaust them all. It's incredible. If you're bored reading the Bible, sit with someone who can help shed a little light on it because it is in technicolor. It is incredible. David says, right hand means all of these blessings. New Testament says, Jesus is now at the right hand, but it gets even better. Because if you're in Christ, Christian, then where are you? You are at the right hand of God. Now, not when you die, now. You are in Christ. Christ is in you. That means all of the right-handed blessings that are Christ's are yours. Not if you were a good boy or girl yesterday. Not if you read your Bible every day this week. Not if you didn't look at porn again. Not if you brought an offering to put in the plate in a few minutes. Always. Because Christ earned that place. Therefore, the hand of right-handed blessings is always open to you. It is never clenched, never closed, never cast away. Do you see how scandalous the gospel is? Your pathetic little attempts to keep it and earn it are ridiculous. They're given to you by God, always. Complete, fully satisfying, unending joy and pleasure are found at the right hand of God. Now, all of this is wonderful news, is it not? But what do we do with it? Frankly, we come here, we sit, we spend an hour and 15 minutes, well, five of us, the rest of you show up 15 minutes late, and we sing, and we listen, and then we go home. 
It's easy right here to feel encouraged. You're sitting among people that agree with you. You're with friends. You're with brothers and sisters. Nothing's wrong. But then you go through those doors and you enter back into a world where not everything is going to go right. Where right-handed blessings are going to seem far, far away. So what do you do? Well, the psalm actually tells us. It says, in a sense, here's how to cultivate confidence in God. Because just like a fire has to be stoked, just like a fire has to be turned over so the flames will keep going, so the embers won't burn out, our confidence in God has got to be poked. You with me? So, Here are a couple of ways to think about applying this psalm. First, if I could just speak to those of you in the room who have not yet trusted Christ. And by the way, that has been everybody in the room. Nobody is born right with God. Nobody. Please don't tell somebody you've always been a Christian because you're lying. You haven't. We're born in sin, separated from God. God calls us out. He gives us faith. We choose to respond, and he saves us. That's the only way anybody is ever a Christian. So those of you in the room who have not yet trusted Christ, the right-handed blessings of God can be yours. God's arms are open. No matter who you are, what you've done, what you did last night, what you did this morning, no matter how bad your worst things are, no matter how good you think your best things are, God's hand is open to you. The only way you can have these blessings is to come to Christ. Because Christ died in your place, rose, and now wants to give himself to you. What do you have to do to get that? The list is actually really, really, really short. You gotta believe. Turn from sin, turn to God. That's it. Now the that's it means he's Lord and he takes everything. So this is no small little decision. This will impact not a few things, everything. But there's time to sort all that out. God's faithful. He'll deliver you. He'll rescue you. But how do you apply this psalm? Well, you start with entering into life with God. And if you have questions about that, we'd love for you to hang around for a few minutes. Nobody here wants to sell you something you don't want. We're not used car salesmen convincing you this piece of junk car is actually worth your money. Grab somebody sitting around you and say, tell me more. Or if you're ready... Pray now. God, God's right hand is open to you. Now, if you've already done that, then what this psalm says to do is to set the Lord always before you. Set the Lord always before you. There's a couple of us in the room that, that like poetry. I think you all are weird. <laughs> Just say it plainly. Don't flower it up. Just say it. 
Psalms are largely poetry. And so it uses symbolic poetic language to, to make a point. The point isn't to conceal the point. The point is to help us feel what's actually being said. And that's what poetry is really great at. But it, it, you got to chew on it. So what does it mean to set the Lord always before me? Obviously, he's not saying, I picked up God and I put God before me. And all day I held out my hands like this. That, that's not what he's saying. So what is he saying? What? Don't put anything else before you, like money. Good one. Yeah, don't set other things in a place of importance before God. Certainly, that's part of what he's saying. He's saying, look for signs of God's presence as he preserves you every single day. Christian, you're here today. So guess what? God has preserved you. Up to this point, you haven't met your ultimate demise. God has overseen your life in such a way that you're still here. What is it that God has preserved you through? Physical, mental, emotional, spiritual. What is God carrying you through right now? To set the Lord before you is to recognize God is supernaturally overseeing my life. He's watching over me. He's preserving me. And dadgummit, my life doesn't look anything like I wanted it to look. But God is preserving me. He's making me more like him. He, David says, and Jesus says, to set the Lord always before you means to look with eyes full of faith. What would it be like if you took just 30 minutes today to think back over the last seven days of your life, but to look at it not through eyes of negativity and selfishness, but through eyes of faith. To see, God, what are ways that you, quote unquote, as people say it today, showed up? How did you display yourself? What did you get me through? What did I stand up and say or do that I could not have done on my own? Where did I have the resources to, to buy what I needed or give away to somebody? What did you preserve me through? And then just simply say thanks to God. Friends, if we do that, then we develop a habit of seeing not just what's happened in our past, but what's happening as we go into the future with eyes of faith. You see, it's easier to see in the past, but... As you cultivate that habit, you can see it ahead. That's what it means to set the Lord before you. It means when you're tempted to choose something other than God, that you say, no, I recognize that temptation, and I turn from it, and I turn to God. And I choose to set my mind on what the Bible says is true. You are not somehow less spiritual if you've got to tell yourself to do that. In fact, you're exercising your muscles of faith. You're growing as you do that. No one outgrows that as a necessity. I've got to wrap this up. Here's a third way to think about cultivating confidence in God. 
bask in the Bible where the gospel is on display. Bask in the Bible where the gospel is ultimately on display. Ultimately, Psalm 16 is a portrayal of the gospel, that Jesus came and died and rose again. And as we hold up this book and read it, we've got to learn to look at the word and to see the word. In other words, we've got to look at the Bible and learn to see Jesus in the Bible because he's everywhere. Jesus is the one David looked forward to and that gave him confidence a thousand years before Jesus came. He is still the one that we look back on 2,000 years after he came and have full, complete confidence in God. Let's pray. Before I lead us in a corporate prayer, I would encourage you to take a moment individually to reflect on what you can do with this psalm and then what we as a faith family, as a church, as brothers and sisters can do. Would you take just maybe 90, 90 seconds and pray alone. Father, we praise you today. Thank you that you've given us your scripture that accurately, faithfully, historically, powerfully tells us exactly who you are and what you've done. Thank you that it's an amazing story. We are people who are inundated every day with messages about where to put our trust, about what will offer lasting confidence, about where joy comes from. And yet we know, as your scripture says, that in the end, at your right hand, that's where there are pleasures evermore. That's where confidence is properly placed. And so, Father, we pray that through your spirit, because Christ lives in us, we would become people who increasingly reflect that in the way that we live. In what we say with our mouths and what we choose to listen to, in what we do with our bodies, in where we go and how we spend our time, what we use our resources on. God, that we would be distinctly different. Not because we are somehow inherently better than anybody else, but because we're fully aware of on our own just how bad we really are. And that because Jesus came and died and rose again, that there's life in him and that everything he has at the right hand of the Father, we have to. God, help us to be a church that perseveres in that truth. We pray that as we leave in just a moment that we would go with confidence, ready to articulate this gospel to our friends, our family, our coworkers, our neighbors, who are all putting trust and confidence in things that will fail them. God, give us this message of grace and truth and may we show it in love. 